You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Good morning. My name is Carla Gerard, and I have the honor of teaching the Word of God this morning. I have loved this sermon series that we have been together with our global Every Nation family from the prayer and fast at the beginning of the month to right now as we end this sermon series focusing on the beauty and the power of God's Word. Reading the Bible is one of the hardest things for me to do, I'm gonna be honest, but it's one of my favorite things. And I just wanna take a moment before I jump into the text this morning to speak to that. You know, reading the Bible, studying the Bible is meant to be done together. Do y'all realize that? We're not just supposed to read the Bible by ourselves. We study and learn together in community. And in case someone or you yourself have fooled yourself into believing that 30 minutes of hearing the word per week is enough, I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Let's use this particular example. If you just ate one meal a day for seven days and you did that for weeks on end, you would not only be emaciated but you would be malnourished and potentially have lost your life. So if we're told in the scripture that this is the words of life, that this is the bread of life, and we just listen to it for 30 minutes a week, our souls will find themselves emaciated, malnourished, and dead. It's important to be here. It's important to be in a connect group. It's important to serve and all the things that we are tempted to just use as a checkbox list but it's just a part of our journey. So we are going to partake of the word of God this morning. Jesus is the bread of life. So we have been in the book of John this month. We sang the words of John 15 this morning, the very first thing we sang, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will forever be fruitful indeed. So you have already actually sung the text this morning. But as I studied the book of John a few years back, it it was a treasure to me. I had to do a big project on the book of John. And John is one of the four gospel authors, but John's gospel is different than the other three. He was very intent on making sure that Jesus was displayed as the divine, as the son of God, as the word of God made flesh, as God incarnate to come and dwell amongst his people. John was very intent on putting Jesus on display. So here's the big idea for today. It's this from John 15. Jesus is the true vine who imparts life to his people. And what is our part? As we abide in him, we will be aligned with him, resulting in a life that trusts his ways and lives obediently. And as we obey his words, we will find joy when we abide in his love. So we're gonna look at the Bible today, as I said. If you'll get out your Bible and turn to John 15. If you don't have a paper Bible this morning, you can find the scriptures on the screen, we hope, and you can also find them in the YouVersion app. But I do want to encourage you to bring your Bible to church every single time you come to church that you would fall in love with the sound of those pages flipping. It is a gift that we have the word of God. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, I'm, I'm serious that I want you to come find me after church and I'll help you remedy that in your life and we'll find you a Bible. So John 15 this morning, I'm gonna read from the word, if you'll join with me. 
Verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things that you may, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Lord, would you bless the reading, the teaching, and the hearing of your word this morning. We trust you to speak to our heart through this imagery in Jesus' name, amen. So the placement of this passage is quite interesting. Scholars say that it is placed between what are called the peaceful teachings of Jesus, as he is teaching his followers about love and how to relate to one another. And then here is John 15, because what's coming is betrayal and the torturous, severe violence that Jesus would suffer at the hands of man. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and he is preparing them for when they will no longer be in the physical presence of their beloved leader and teacher. I think sometimes when we read the scripture, we forget that these accounts are of actual people. These accounts were of real people's lives, real words spoken, people in real severe circumstances. Jesus, having walked in radical ways with these 12 disciples and having consistently warned them of his departure, he was encouraging them through the imagery of the vine and branches of their ongoing relationship with him that could take place even when he was gonna be physically absent. He knew the sadness and the heartache, the challenge and the trial that would soon be upon them, and because he loved them, he was leaving them with an image that they would not be able to forget. Now, practically, the image and the imagery of the vineyard would not have been as foreign to the disciples as it might be to us. Now, I may have like a vine dresser here in the room, which would be awesome if you do, you know, manage a vineyard. I would love to come tour it. But for the most part, I haven't seen a lot of vineyards around Evans, Georgia. But to the disciples, they would have known about vineyards because Israel was a land of vineyards. Get this term I found in my studies this week agricultural fertility. Now that was new to me. It might not be new to you, but that was a new term to me. And here's the deal. Israel had vineyard upon vineyard upon vineyard. The disciples, the listeners, they knew the care and attention, the labor and patience that went into a vineyard. They knew that the life source, the vineyards, they knew that the life source um, provided by the vineyards in their culture and in their economy and they were aware of the fruit that was produced and the purpose of its production. Jesus was leaving them, I'll mention again, with an ongoing reminder of his care for them, but also their dependence upon him, that they would have to stay and remain in him. 
So this morning we're gonna break this passage up and take a look at the four elements in this narrative. Number one is the vine. Verse one says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Verse four, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. And again, verse five, I am the vine and you are the branches. So this is, when Jesus spoke this, this was the final I am statement in the book of John. We have talked about some of these this week. Jesus had previous, I mean this month, not just this week, or maybe you have this week, which would be awesome because you're studying the Bible in community, let it be. Jesus had previously identified himself as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and now he says, I am the vine, not just the vine, I am the true vine. So what does that mean? There are a couple of things worth noting here. Jesus was not only using this vineyard imagery because it was understandable to the listener, but he was also intentionally using it because of the language um, of this, this message that he was delivering was known to the Jewish audience through their prophets of old. And scholars believe that the audience from the book of John was mostly Jewish listeners. But here's, there's a twist in the New Testament. Jesus stating that he was the true vine fulfills Old Testament prophecies and grafts in all of God's children. And to Jewish listeners, this was quite the claim because this ethnic Israel was no longer the vineyard, but the kingdom of God was going to be the vineyard. Jew and Gentile together in unity is what was going to represent the vineyard. So Jesus saying this and that he was the true vine means that only those that remain in him can be participants in the kingdom. God's children, all of God's children, every tribe, nation, and tongue will be unified as one under the banner Jesus and now they all make up the vineyard. So it's quite radical to his listeners. No longer ethnic Israel, now those who remain in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus is the true vine, the true source and sustainer of life. This final I am statement is the exclamation point on a long series of proclamations as I mentioned before. But before um, the I am statements were in the book of John, there is a nod to the rich and ancient truth of who Jesus is. Long before life was breathed into Adam, long before Abraham was born, long before covenant was cut and instituted, long before Noah was preserved, long before God announced himself as I am to Moses in the burning tree, and long before David was established, Jesus was I am. We see in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Here's the good news. For those of us who are in Christ, we rest in knowing that Jesus is our source, our sustainer, and in the promise of Acts 17, that in him we live and move and we have our being. So the second player in this narrative is the gardener. We see this in, again, verse one. I am the true vine, says Jesus, and my father is the gardener. 
Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So God our Father is the gardener, and he owns the vineyard, vineyard, and he tends it for the purpose of fruit bearing. We see from this passage that he does this in three ways. He cultivates, he prunes, and he protects. He cultivates, he prunes, and he protects, and we're gonna unpack those. The gardener cultivates the vineyard by planting and then protecting the vine and the branches. He nourishes the vineyard and provides the nutrients needed for the vineyard to flourish. Now this takes time and attention, and the process can be quite slow. He plans out the best time for planting, pruning, and harvesting. So before I go on and, and talk about pruning, I wanna make sure of one thing here. This is imagery about a vineyard, but I'm trusting the Spirit of God this morning to help us apply this to our life. Amen. That we will understand what it means for God to cultivate our life, for God to prune our life and protect our life as we find ourselves, I pray, attached to the vine. So the gardener prunes the vineyard with the goal of helping the branches bear fruit with maximum fruitfulness. Pruning is a painful process, right? I mean, I have experienced pruning repeatedly over and over and over in my life. And although I wouldn't trade those seasons for anything because they make me more like Christ and be closer to the Savior and God in an intimate way, but man, they're painful. So for the purposes of our illustration in John, pruning could happen in two ways. Get this. The pruning will cut away the dead branch completely, or he will cut away the living tissue from branches still connected to the life source. So this picture of pruning is not just one of anger or despondence. The gardener's not going through like, you know, with a big knife, just hacking away at the vine, at the branches. It's a picture of intimate tending. The gardener has to draw near to the branch to prune it. This tending's intent is one of care and concern for the branch so that the crop is not diseased or jeopardized. That's the purpose of pruning. So let's apply that to our own lives, excuse me. God's pruning in our lives is guaranteed and it consists of cleansing us and convicting us we see in the text that our abiding in Christ is to lead to fruitfulness. When we are wrapped up in sin that jeopardizes our life, thoughts and activities that cause disease to infiltrate our soul, God will prune us. Yeah. Or sometimes God prunes things in our lives that aren't intrinsically bad. They just hinder us from maximum fruitfulness. So let's remember that God knows best his goal is not our satisfaction, but his goal is his glory shown through lives that are faithful and fruitful. Lastly, the gardener protects the vineyard. He protects it from harm, harm from those that would abuse it, and also harm that comes from outside elements. But second, he protects it from life that is stifled when dead branches create clutter, distraction, and potential disease. Remember, he owns the property and he will do absolutely what it takes to bring security to it. So he cultivates, he prunes, and he protects those that are his. 
And albeit painful most of the time, he does deserve our trust. And I would encourage you this morning to put your trust in him. The third part of this narrative is the branches. Let's go back to verse four. I mean, it's, it's like the writer wants us to really get this into our soul, right? Because he's just repeating the same phrases over and over and over in different ways. It's like a tongue twister. So number four, remain in me and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. You can do nothing without me. Verse six, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. So this is me and you, right? Like we are the branches. God is the gardener. Jesus is the vine, which is the life source, and we are the branches. So here's another point this morning. The branches cannot produce life on their own as they must draw life from the vine. The branches cannot produce life on their own as they must draw life from the vine. So do you read what I read? We cannot produce life on our own. We can do nothing without Christ. We must abide in him and we have to remain in him. Here's the definition of remain. It's gonna be on the screen for you too. It's defined as this, to continue, to rest or abide in a place for a time indefinite, to be left after others have withdrawn, to rest or abide in the same place when others remove or are lost, destroyed, or taken away. I think that's weighty as all get out. We are to stay. We are to stick. We are to remain in the vine. We are to remain with one another. We are to do the hard work of relationship. We are to stay. We are immovable when it comes to abiding in Christ. We stay with him so he can work his life in and through us to produce fruit. And we don't stay with him without staying with each other. We already heard that this morning in the rally. And I'm gonna belabor that point in a few minutes. But what about when we don't? What about when we run? What false sources of life do we run to? And I'm gonna give us a list here. Money, prestige, promotions, friends, our kids, our platforms, addictive habits and behaviors, things others know about and things that we think are hidden, good grades, social media facades, our own God-given skills and talents, the latest TikTok dance, the likes on our social accounts, as if they have any life-giving sustenance. And the list goes on. But these things don't give us life or purpose, because listen, Purpose is different than having something to do. I know a lot of extremely busy, purposeless people. It's not that God doesn't have a purpose for them. They're living outside of their purpose because they don't remain with God or with each other. So don't be fooled and don't get confused. God has life and abundant life for you, but it is only found in your connection in, abiding in, and remaining with Jesus. Everything else is lifeless, dead, dead. A fear of God comes over me when I think about verse six and I think it's worth reading again. 
If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Dead branches. There's a really simple, albeit scary, progression here. Dead, gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Or let's think of it this way. Disconnected, lifeless, useless, and destroyed. John addresses branches like this in 1 John, and hang with me. He says this in verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. In my studies, I found this. Paul also addresses something similar in Acts when he speaks of the false teachers and those that walked away from the early church. He makes the point, as does John, that there are those that will have visible membership in the family of God and then they will walk away. And in their walking away, they renounce the faith and the true gospel to the same degree that Judas did at the Last Supper. Oh, that we would remain in the vine, that we would remain in the body. I don't want that to happen to us. Now our last player in this narrative is the fruit. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And then here it is, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That's verse eight, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's a producing and there's a proving. Fruitfulness is a byproduct of staying in the vine. That's another point for this morning. Fruitfulness is a byproduct of staying in the vine. The branch only bears fruit when grafted into the vine, but we are not to be distracted or concerned with the results because those are up to God. Those are up to him. Our sole purpose is to stay connected to Jesus and trust the outcome to him. We don't compare or become discontent by shifting our eyes off of him. We are to remain steadfastly focused on him. Our aim and purpose for living is to worship God and bring glory to him. So how do we do this? We practice spiritual disciplines. Men, I know if you were at the arena on Friday night, which I heard was an amazing time, you heard something about spiritual disciplines. You know, for those of us who have ears to hear, there's an echo from last Sunday to Friday night with the men to this Sunday. So I think God's trying to tell us something in our church. Here's what it means when we practice spiritual disciplines. We read, apply, and obey the Bible. I'm the queen of the hashtag read your Bible, but I really need like hashtag read your Bible, hashtag apply the word, hashtag obey the word. Cause it's all three, it's not just reading. A lot of people just read the Bible, but we read, apply and obey. We pray and sing to the Lord in our spiritual disciplines. We give generously in spiritual disciplines. We serve the church, we serve others, and we build the kingdom in our community. We live with enough margin in our time, talent, and treasure to love our enemies and reach out to the poor and disenfranchised. We submit to our leaders, and we do in all things what God has called us to do, and that is to love him and to love our neighbor. And listen, 
We don't just do these things grumbling and without enthusiasm. We participate in these things with joy. We take what he has given us and we give it back to him with joy. We don't just read our Bible, but we love it. We don't just pray to God, but we love it. We don't just sing and give and love others and serve and submit, but we love doing these things when we are truly abiding in Christ. What he has given to us, we joyfully give back to him through a life well lived. And that is our proving that we are his disciples. So why does it seem that we do repeat this message over and over and over? I guess it's because we just can't seem to get it deep down into our thick skulls or else we have a problem letting it go from here to here, to our soul and into our heart. Listen, there, there is absolutely no formula for righteous living. I wish there was. I'm a math girl. A plus B equals C. Two plus two equals four. But there is no formula. But there is absolutely a pattern. We follow the example and pattern of Christ by remaining in constant fellowship with the Father. We do this through the Son and empowered by the Spirit. From that abiding, we follow God's pattern of love. God loves Jesus, loves us, and we love others. No matter what the specifics of our calling, our individual and corporate lives are always expected to bear fruit that is seen in how we love each other and how we love others. This brings glory to the Father. But what happens when we try to fake it? We try to fake it through all that we've talked about today. What happens? I wanna draw your attention in your mind, like do any of you all have fake houseplants? Or have you ever seen one? And not like those little succulents that like we put on our mantle, on our counter, on our table, on our dashboard, like everywhere those little succulents are, those little fake succulents. I'm talking about like a five foot ficus tree that might be in the corner of your house, or if that's too old school and people are no longer having ficus trees, which is the same family as a fiddle leaf, but just think about your doctor's office, your dentist's office, the foyer at school, wherever. Think about those dead house plants. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say dead yet. Fake house plants. Ah, oh, I just took my own, pun my own punch line. But anyway, if you draw near to those, those fake house plants, you're definitely gonna find some dust, right? They're always dusty, always making dust everywhere. But listen, upon further inspection, they're dead and cannot produce fruit. They will never change and they will never grow because they don't have a life source. Think about how ridiculous a dead fake tree or a dead branch looks with fake fruit hanging off of it. What a sight. If you or I just walk around faking it, we will find ourselves in sin, in burnout, and in our wake will be a path of destruction in our own life and in all of our relationships. But when we are attached to the vine and receive the life that it gives, our lives will result in righteous living, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, and also righteous relationships. All of the righteous fruit of our life will impact all of our relationships, all of our dead, bad, fake fruit also impacts all of our relationships. 
We were made to love one another. And you can't tell me that you're close to Jesus and not have right relationships with those around you. You can't be close to the Father and rip his children to shreds. Those two cannot coexist. I heard this imagery this week on social media through Emmanuel Acho, and he was talking about football teams. So I'm gonna use it this morning. Let's say we have a green jerseyed football team and we have a yellow jerseyed football team. And here they come together, they line up on the line of scrimmage, the ball is in the possession of the yellow team, the ball goes down, the quarterback asks for the ball, it's hiked to him, and instead of what should happen, the green team should defend, should advance, and the yellow team should defend their quarterback, but instead, here we go, and the yellow team turns on each other, tackles each other, and then also sacks their own quarterback, all while the green team just stands there looking at their opponent like, what are you doing? This is a picture of the church. We're on the same team, and we have the playbook. We know what we're supposed to be doing. In here, we find the words of life. In here, we find the truth and how we're supposed to forgive, how we're supposed to bear with one another, how we're supposed to defend one another, how we're supposed to speak truth to one another, how we're supposed to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us. We are supposed to take care of each other, not turn on each other, all the while the world looks on and says, what in the world are they doing? I might not know exactly what it's supposed to be like, but it's not supposed to be like that. You cannot tell me that you love God and slander each other. You cannot tell me that you abide in Christ and rip people to shreds in the family of God and outside. They are incongruent with each other. Let's follow in the words of our playbook. So let me ask you this today. What kind of fruit do you see in your life? What fruit do you see in your life? Righteous or fake? I want you to take an honest look. Do you find fruit that has come from a thriving relationship with Jesus? Or do you, do you find fake fruit, leftover fruit, old fruit because you're trying to live in the old relationship you had with Jesus when there's a fresh new thing that he has for you. What kind of fruit is in your life? Are you just playing a game? Are you just putting on a facade and wearing a mask? Are you living the life of a cultural Christian? Or are you a fake disciple? Abiding in the vine produces fruit and this is fruit that will last. This is fruit that glorifies the Father. This is fruit that will prove that we are his disciples. This fruit coupled with our faith will bring us joy. We see that in the end of our passage, John 15, verse nine. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Remaining in Christ, remaining in the vine, there is a joy that comes from the Father that is in us and in that joy we're made complete. As I close today, I wanna to make this as clear or as plain as possible, the importance of abiding in Jesus. 
I know that most of us are aware of the obvious distractions and the sins that will rob us from our connection with Christ, those things that are not fitting for a believer to put before their eyes, to allow in our ears, or to be bound by, those things that we hope never come to light, although we are foolish to believe that they won't. But what about those things that destroy us from the inside? The legalistic bent, the critical spirit, the judgmental soul, the stubborn will, the tough mind, the cynical heart, the sarcastic attitude, and the unyielding rebel. Those things will rumble under the surface for a while. But these things are not as hidden as you may think. They are not only a part of our sinful nature, but they are often a result of pain and trauma and loss. They grow from bitterness and a refusal to face them head on, even when the pain is most unbearable. They fool us into believing that we will be okay, and they deceive us into thinking that their leadership is the reality that will lead to fruitfulness, when in actuality they blind us. We are blind to the vicious cycle of striving that they force us into so we aren't found out. And there is absolutely nothing more opposite of abiding than striving. In December of 2018, I went for a five-day counseling intensive in Tallahassee. And on a run one day, I came across this huge cemetery surrounded by a very solid iron fence. And as I jogged along the sidewalk, running the length of the cemetery, I passed this tree trunk in this photo that we'll put up that had grown itself around the fence. So here, this iron, it's a little hard to see from this picture, but it's like embedded into the heart of this tree. I was so struck by the strangeness of seeing this weird and out of place image that I stood there still and stared at it for what seemed like an hour. So the second image, this is the same tree. So here is this tree, the heart of it with this iron coming through it, coming through the heart of the tree. And you see the stump down there in the ground and it's been cut off. And it was just super strange. And when you see super strange things like that, you should stop and ask God, because he's probably speaking to you. So behind this fence is a cemetery that I have since learned more about, and God has continued now three and a half years later to unpack this image for me this week. This is the oldest public cemetery in the state of Florida. And it was created and started when the yellow fever was ripping through this area. The yellow fever was no respecter of persons touching whoever it was going to touch. So they had to open the cemetery so they could bury the bodies to try to rid the disease from the community. But here's the deal with the cemetery. It's a segregated cemetery. Blacks buried here, white is buried here. Dignitary here, servant there. Slave owner here, slave there. Union soldier here, Confederate soldier there. In the soil of this cemetery is segregation. In the soil of this cemetery is damaged relationships. In the soil of this cemetery is infighting and the opposite of the true gospel. So what I saw this week in the image of this tree, as it, if you will, tried to escape from this place that it was planted, it was planted in soil of death. It wasn't planted in a place that had life. 
and it's on the inside of the fence. And as it tried to grow out, it grew itself into its own death because it was planted in a place of death. And here's what you see, it's cut off, it's lifeless, it's useless, it's a dead branch, and it looks ridiculous. And it's obvious for all to see. I don't know what God may use this image to show you this morning, but I know he's speaking to us today. So let's consider Jesus and his image as the true vine, coursing with life and supplying all the branches, the entire vineyard with what it needs. There is one last connection to bring this imagery today full circle. As Jesus took the last supper with his disciples, he spoke to the impending time when he would pour himself out and face death and sin head on for the sake of his followers. He ministered the good news that there was to be a way with the Father forever, that through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and the tearing of his flesh and the spilling of his blood, there would be a once and for all sacrifice made to pay the penalty of sin and satisfy the wrath of God. Knowing full well that this was upon him, he administers the Passover meal to his beloved ones. And in this administration and establishment of this ritual for his believers then and for us now, he speaks the word to his disciples and us that involve drinking of the fruit of the vine. Drink of the fruit of the vine. Take and drink and remember. We wanna pay attention to the words that Jesus spoke at the end of his life. What do we do? We remember what he has done. We sing songs like my savior took a journey to the cross. My healer is at home when all seems lost. My redeemer looked death right in the eye and said I win. We remember the truth of what Jesus has done. We abide in Christ. Spurgeon says this, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we feel it, the happier we are. Paul says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He also says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be in Christ is how we remain. Through all the passages today, we hear this repeated truth, Christ in me, me in Christ, Christ in God. We choose to believe the truth and bring our obedience and faith to the relationship and to remain in Christ means we do not live in the prison of our sin and our shame. For those who are in Christ, we do not live lonely and isolated. Let's flee from the false safeties and comforts of life that imprison us. Let's stop the nonsense of cultural Christianity and fake discipleship. Let's stop hearing the word but failing to do what it says. Let's abide in Christ. Let's run to Jesus. We think the walls of our own making keep us hidden and protected, but they don't. They're plexiglass. They're fragile. The whole world can see them. They are not walls of stronghold, safety, and peace. 
Our sin always exposes us and fools us into believing that we are secure, but our sin is not our safe place. Our safe place is our Savior. He is our life, He is our sustainer, He is where we remain, He is where we abide, He is where we wait, and He is who we trust. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from, and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.